Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sheila Scheuge, and welcome to Ready to Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. Making positive choices when cooking and eating is something most of us strive for. So I'm delighted to say that for the month of December, I've teamed up with an Irish family-run company whose ethos is exactly that. I've been a big fan of Dr. Coy's health foods for years now. I use their stevia in my morning coffee every day and their delicious chocolate is also full of nutritional benefits and gives you energy without the sugar crash. And to celebrate our partnership, they're offering 25% off their entire range of nutritional products. Simply go to their website, drcoys.ie, and use the code SHEILA25. This week, I chat to university lecturer, PhD student, radio presenter and author, Brian Penny. But what I would say, if you're trying to give up and you're having these cravings, I think it's a great tool in addiction circles. It was part of my PhD. It's called, it's part of a, of a, a course called Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention. And there's an idea in it that a craving is a very strange energy in the body, but a craving only lasts about 60 to 90 minutes, 90 seconds. That's all a craving actually lasts. That's short. Yeah, it's a short, it's a short time. And you could have a craving and say, I'd love a drink, but you could be hungry, you could be thirsty, you could be craving something else. But to get over that craving, there's a great mind practice that's called surfing the urge so literally think of that craving like a wave coming into the shore and instead of just sort of giving into it you just picture yourself surfing that urge and let it come in and surf the wave ride the wave all the way into shore and when that comes in that craving will be gone the 8th of october 2013 was brian's first day clean after 15 years of chronic heroin addiction and since that day he has radically turned his life around now at 42 life is good. This year, he released his compelling memoir, Bonus Time, and he also found love for the very first time in his life. During our chat, he talks about feeling anxious from an early age, his upbringing, and of course, his heroin addiction. But we also talk about what he's learned through years of study and self-reflection. We talk about the power of self-talk, the importance of routine, practicing gratitude, mindfulness, and most of all, connection. I learned so much from Brian during this conversation, and I hope you find it as beneficial as I did. 
I want to start with you as as a child. You know what kind of kid you were, because um, I know being anxious was something that played its part in your life. Yeah, it played such a, such a huge role in my life, Sheila, and it really it really stems from from um, being an infant for me. So I, I came into the world with a condition known as intestinal malrotation, and for in lay terms, basically what that was was my intestines were twisted in, in my guts. So when I was born, for the first couple of weeks when I was born, um, I was just like vomiting all the time. There was no nutrients getting into my body. So it was misdiagnosed a few times. A couple of weeks later, after I was born, they recognised they made a huge mistake. They were telling me, Mom, it's colic, it's colic, it's colic. It wasn't. And uh, I lost half my birthday. So it was like a big panic rush to Harcourt Street Hospital at the time. Uh, police escort. Like it was crazy stuff. Like near death experience, nearly in fairness, after only being born. And um, what many people don't know, and this is the crazy thing, that it was only in 1985 did the medical practice realise that infants experience pain like normal human beings. So before that, infants went under, the oh, had operations without a general anaesthetic. So I actually insane. had, it's crazy, it's absolutely insane. So I only done research on this when I wrote my book and I found out about this. And from a psychological perspective, like I've studied psychology, I've gone into the depths of this stuff and I found that I've literally been conditioned to view the world as a painful place. So for, for a year, the first year of my life, there was complications from the surgery and I was just experiencing pain. I cried for the first year of my life. So I would have just been in flight or flight, flight mode and just like sort of associate the world with danger and pain and I think that just primed me for a life of anxiety and whether I would have been like as I grew up and got I got a bit older I was just wor- I worried about everything I was compulsively thinking I was I was nervous and agitated and restless and I think it was primed through I think that was a big feature of that and it just really carried through to my childhood so in terms of of that experience so you had an operation and yeah. that you you were completely lucid for it as 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 a young baby. So based on neurological evidence, weak neurological evidence from the 1940s, based on pinpricking evidence, they realised that they didn't need to give it, it kids a general anaesthetic. So you did give you a muscle relaxant. Right. So I don't know whether I was asleep or not, what way that worked. But I, I think I, I was just sort of a muscle relaxant that stopped me squirming. And then it would have been given the operation, for a full operation without a general anaesthetic. So I think I would have been awake to an extent. Yeah, it's crazy. That's, yeah, crazy. And it yeah. sounds so barbaric yeah. to us now. Yeah. But, but that's not long ago when you think about it. It's not long ago. It was only in 1985. I forget the woman's name. And she found out that her child had open heart surgery without a general anaesthetic. And she, there was a big outcry. Gosh. And the, when the medical practice looked into it, they were like, oh, my God, what have we been doing for the last few years? It was just this big shift in perspective on that. They realized what they were doing was based on weak evidence from many years ago. And they just changed the shift completely. There was a few other there was a few other moments in my life that caused trauma, I think, or hurt. I think hurt is the better way of talking about it. Like my first memory is uh, walking, is this uh, young girl says to me, do you remember bags of dib-dab, the fields? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she says, do you want some dib-dab? I was in the field, I was in, across my house, I think it was in three or four at the time, my first memory. Yeah. And I put my hand in the bag and there was bees in the bag. <laughs> So, bees like, bees there was bees in the bag that's my first memory in life so like I, I was I had these little mini traumas throughout my life and then uh, another big one was we moved to Canada when I was five years of age yeah. and we were supposed to be going to Australia the whole family 
it was uh, there was something happened with um, with restrictions to Australia, so we changed shift and we were going out. The whole family's going to go to Canada instead. But my mum was pregnant with my brother James, and um, she had to stay back. So I was only five at the time. We moved over without my mum, so I wasn't with my mum for four months. And then when she arrived, she arrived with a new baby. So I think that had a big impact on my life as well. Yeah. And then there was the alcohol as well. So I, I always say I come from a loving family, and I really do I have great relationships with my family now. But mm. it was an alcoholic background. And I would say the biggest, the biggest memory of my life and the biggest cause of anxiety in my life, besides the earlier trauma, is just from the ages of six to 10 years of age in Blanchardstown in, in Dublin. I just remember Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, looking out through the bedroom curtains, waiting for me mum and dad to come home, drunk from the pub because they'd be drink driving. And I think primed by me anxiety and this overthinking mind, I'd be very analytical as well. I'm always thinking, and that's the way I always was. And I was just worrying about everything, and I would just be obsessed. I just, I'd, I'd start my window watches. I'd say from about ten o'clock, mm. and I remember every car that drove down the road. I jump up to the window. It's this them, like the hopes building. This could be them. This could be them. The car would drive past. I'd sit back down in the bed, and that was like huge memories that I have of growing up in childhood. And I just think that a multitude of these different things just sort of primed me for a life anxiety, as I like to say, and. That's when I, when I found drugs. Like, I've been recently talking to a psychologist and we're developing a course around addiction recovery, the secrets of addiction recovery, it's mm. called. And she basically thinks, like, I hadn't got a chance. As soon as I tried drugs, like, that was going to give me the relief, the warm blanket that just wrapped around me and gave me that relief away from that. So it really just set the stage for a life of addiction for me. Did you feel like that was absent growing up? Because I know you speak extremely fondly about your parents and your siblings, and I know that they have been a huge help in the process of writing your book. Yeah. Um, but... Nonetheless, with all the other, as you said, being separated from your mum for the period of those few months when you travelled to Canada, the fact that alcohol played such a big part, were you craving just safety, connection? Yeah, 100%. And there's a great line by Johan Harry, sobriety is not the opposite of addiction, connection is. I think, I think awareness is a big piece of that as well. And although I come from a very, very loving family, love wasn't showed in an affectionate way either. So I think that was something missing from your life as well. Like we, we didn't hug each other. We don't hug each other in our family. And now when I know people now, I'm a big hugger. I didn't know that up until okay. recently, you know. And so that wasn't in the family. But I got, I was always fed. There was always food on the table. We were always brought on holidays. We knew the love was there, but I craved connection and I craved affection. And I suppose parenting skills, my parents done the best with the tools we were given, but they left school at 13, 14 years of age. So there wasn't really, like, I, I would be in good in school and stuff like that. And I, I, I always wanted to achieve. That was a big thing in my life to achieve. And I was never really given the structures to help me build that as well. So I think that was something missing from my life as well. And the fact that you are obviously so accomplished now in adulthood and you've gone on to achieve, I mean, you've... I mean, what you've done is mind-boggling, to be honest. It's amazing. Um, but was that recognised when you were a kid? Did they see that in you? Okay, you know what? Brian is, is he's got something. It's funny you say that. So my mum, my mum would, would would have her own stuff. Like, my mum's amazing, but she'd have her own, her, her own stuff as well. And one of the things that she always passed on to, her, on to us would have been, not in a good way, would have been stay in the middle. Don't be too good, don't be too bad, so you don't get recognised and there won't be bullying, there won't be any of that kind of a thing. So if you stay in the middle, you'll be okay. So I was pretty good I was pretty good in school. I'd be good at football, but my mum would never push me forward because that would be me putting myself out on, uh, out, marking myself to be targeted by other people. 
I suppose. And one of my brothers was bullied as well. I never was. But um, so she always says stay in the middle. And my sister would have struggled with that as well. Like be like, um, she was a great Irish dancer, but she wouldn't have been pushed to the level she could have gone. She could have gone like right to the very top. And it's it's funny. I remember having an argument with my mum someday and says, it won't be capable of that. Don't don't be aiming too high. And I remember just, I remember getting, getting teary. It was the only time I remember crying in front of my mum when I was younger. And I remember saying, don't you put your stuff on me. I can be whatever I want to be. Now, I ended up being a heroin addict for a long time, so I didn't really fulfill that that journey. But that was always there, that want to fulfill some kind of, to, to do well in life. That, that drive was always there. Yeah. So, um, the drive was always there, but unfortunately life took you down a different path for a period of years. Yeah. So, um, was alcohol kind of a stepping stone to heavier, stronger drugs? No, I always say it was part of it, but I always say cigarettes were the stepping stone for me. Okay. So I was obsessed with football. For me, like I was good in school and stuff like that. But for me, um, it was all about I wanted to be a footballer. I was good at football. I was never going to make it as a professional footballer. In retrospect, I wasn't that good. But I was, good. I was a good footballer. I was talking me going to England and stuff like that. And I got a knee injury at 14 years of age because all my friends were smoking cigarettes, starting to smoke cigarettes and mess around with hash and stuff like that. And I was saying, there's no way would I put a cigarette in my body, damage my football career or whatever. But I remember being injured for a few months and we were up on top of the, the football dressing rooms of all time, of all things, ironically. And my friend Alan was saying, oh, the head buzz you get off that. And I, I must have been getting interested in drugs. That's the age, maybe, especially in that in the area where I grew up. Great area, but the, the drug riddle area as well, I suppose, back then especially. And I was must have been getting curious about drugs. And I was like, head buzz. And that got, that piqued my interest. And I remember taking the first puff of my cigarette on top of the dressing rooms. And I remember the buzz I got from that it was a big... Samson, big dirty roll up Samson tobacco roll up and the head buzz I got from that and I loved that little head buzz that I got from that and I started then start smoking cigarettes soon enough I was taking puffs of joints and stuff like that within a few months I was messing around with tablets acid over the next year or two petrol we used to sniff a lot of petrol then as well alcohol and it really just alcohol was a part of it but it was really just a mix of everything it was yeah. really just a mix of everything yeah, up until the age of 16 just messing around with all alcohol and different drugs so it happened quickly like yeah pretty quickly pretty quickly yeah so would you kind of just try anything was, it, were you, was there ever a voice in your head going maybe not no, it's crazy. And there was a there was a priest when I when I went to a treatment center. Finally, um, when I when I got there in the end, there was a priest at the treatment center. And I, mean, I never forget he said that some people have, uh oh, I wouldn't do that, and they would have that a cocaine. Oh, wouldn't do class A drugs, or uh oh, I wouldn't take a tablet and do weed. They'll just drink and smoke hash. Some people will do coke, but uh oh, wouldn't do heroin. I never had that uh oh. Even even when it came to injecting heroin, like I've a morbid fear of needles still to this day. But that was the only thing that held me back from in, injecting heroin. But I still got there in the end. So I never really had that uh oh, don't do that. Which is really strange. It was like this this idea that it was bulletproof, which we obviously aren't. But it was just this idea that I'd be okay no matter what, which what obviously wasn't the case. Is that an age thing as well, though? Because sometimes when yeah. we're in those yeah those years, and particularly I suppose for for men, for boys, yeah, you know there is that feeling of we can do anything, take can, on the world. Yeah, I've read about this. It's supposed to be an evolutionary perspective yeah. as well. It's like it pushes people forward and, and, and it helps it. Like if you want to take over clans, because we're still working off the same biological machinery that served us thousands of years ago. Yeah. Evolution doesn't know we have smartphones and we're living in cities and stuff like that. So that drive is still there to take risks and, and be bold and be brave and dare greatly. And I think that was part of it as well. Right. So um, then you go down the heroin route and that unfortunately is a 
a really long road. I mean, 15 years of it. Yeah. And, and you've spoken about it in the book and that I've heard you before speak about that first time and feeling this warmth. Yeah. When I think of heroin like now, it's like I lost a relationship. It was like a marriage. It was like a relationship. That was the connection I had with life. It was a false sense of connection. Mm. But like I dedicate a whole chapter in that book to my first night down heroin. And the name of the chapter is Fallen in Love. Love yeah. So you talk about connection. And I'll never forget it. It was like, it was, I, I, that's how I describe it. It was like a warm, soft blanket just wrapping around my soul, taking all of me pain away. It was like, the voice went quiet, the bodily sensations, the feelings. Like, I always struggled with bodily sensations, which I think were, were, were it triggered from the earlier trauma that I had. Mm. Like, it's only in the last few years I've been comfortable with my own heartbeat and my own pulse. They were struggles that I had. Obviously, that came through with earlier traumas. Yeah. And But when I took heroin, it was just like it took all of that away. It was like, there's a great song by Pink Floyd that describes it. It's called, they call it comfortably numb. Mm. But it was just this comfortably numb feeling. All of the pain was gone away. All of the worries were gone away. And everything felt okay. And I remember it was like a voice that night saying, like, keep me close and I'll look after you. And even though I wasn't addicted from it, like a lot of people think you get addicted from heroin the first time. Like I, I was mentally addicted from that very first time, but it took me a while. Like I, 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 I thought I was too smart for heroin. I thought it was too clever for heroin. So it took me a while before I got to grips with me and I became a daily heroin addict. But I had me, I had it dug its claws in from that very first night. So for me, I was able to, to not be all consumed by heroin. And it had me in its claws. It had me in its grips early on. But it was able to not let it consume me as long as I could keep anxiety at bay and from the ages of 17 that's when I first took heroin up until the age of 20 I was doing it once a week once every two weeks playing around with it I was probably never going to escape it in, in the end looking, looking back now but when I was 20 I had my first panic attack and my panic attack, my I say my panic attack, which is very dangerous, like panic attack is a panic attack. I used to say my anxiety, like I owned anxiety, which was very, my sense of self was, was built within that, which is dangerous in itself. But when I had that panic attack, it was like I thought I was going to die, like the dread of a panic attack. It's one of the most fearsome experiences you can go through. And it, it sort of ramped up my anxiety levels by 10 it was like when after the panic attack me me general anxiety was at a much higher level much much higher level and i remember i, I wasn't able to work i had a, I had a few debts at the time i was in my job about three years and i had a few debts because of loans credit cards mbna if you remember them back at yeah, the time yeah, your yeah. dishing out gold cards yeah. and i remember um when i was in work i couldn't actually work on the computer i was doing graphics at the time and i was trying to click the button and i'd be shaking my hands and the anxiety was just all consuming i couldn't do my job and I remember going to do my GP and he gave me angsty calm. I think they were Valium at the time. And he says, take them. And he got rid of the anxiety and I could go to work. And I was messing around. Heroin was digging its claws in a little bit more. And I remember doing some of the tablets with a bag of heroin one of the Friday nights. And it gave me an extra great buzz, taking the anxiety away. And I went to my doctor the following week and I said to him, hey, can I get another box of angsty, another box of Valium? And he says, oh no, that's just a short term fix. And I remember getting really angry when I said, I need them. I can't operate in the world. And he says, but he gave me a book. I can't even remember what the book was. He gave me a book to read. And I says, I don't need a book. I need drugs. Like, And I remember walking out of that GP and I rationalized and justified my way into it. He is making me do heroin, which is a, <laughs> was an absolute farce. Yeah, well, but I was yeah. able to justify it that way. Right, the world is telling me I have to do heroin. And that's I, I, I was doing it a lot more than I was starting to do it two or three times a week. And I was starting to get addicted and stuff like that. And it had me pretty soon after that. 
Were you always doing it on your own or did you ever do it with other people? Um, I always, it was me and my best friend. I won't say his name. Sure. Bar- Barry's his name in the book. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it was crazy. A, a little offshoot story of that. I met him last week for the first time in a couple of years out in Blanchetown Centre. And he's still, unfortunately, he's still on the streets. So he's still he's still going through a bad way. But we had the best laugh. We had such good fun. We're going to meet up again soon. Mm. But um, he went into the off-license. I shouldn't be laughing about this, but he went into the off-license at one stage to grab it, to get smokes, he said. But he actually tried to rob six cans of Druid's Glen, like, uh, while he was in there. The security, I'm like, I could have gotten arrested, like, you know what I mean? The world I'm in now. And then the following night, I'm in um, I'm in Trinity College, number one, <laughs> only, only 100 yards down yeah, the street. In, wow. in having having, having having a chat with the president of Trinity College on yeah. Fergal Nocton and I'm like the difference in those two nights of where I've come from is it like and where sliding I was, doors for you oh it was, it was an incredible incredible thing terrible for me friend but you must be inspiring for him does he look at you and go or does he ever say you know can I do what you've done right so he, he doesn't he thinks he's so deep now he is we're, so we're looking into this at the moment and he right. wants to have a chat and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by this because I didn't think it was going to happen right. so when we were having the chat that night he actually said to me he says don't put me into your algorithms you will blow up your computers <laughs> if you put my details in there and he says he says you're not what do you say you're not only an agent you're an agent if you think you can get me to, if you think you can fix me but a seed was planted right. and we're going to hook up again and have a chat again now obviously hasn't got a phone and stuff like that it's hard to make contact so we make contact through Facebook but I'm hopeful for the first time in years that we could we could go somewhere with that oh god yeah, I, ho- really, I hope really nice. yeah. yeah Jesus that that would be I, I'm sure you're getting such satisfaction from the work you're doing now in terms of helping people sharing your story sharing your skills with people but if if something positive was to happen there, that that would that would be phenomenal. It would. It would. Yeah. To see the actions, to see the fruits coming in, it, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. great. Yeah. Would you have ever thought back then that you'd be where you're at now? Like if somebody had showed you like a crystal ball of of your life now, running courses, writing your book, you know, uh, being on stage in front of people, talking, tell, sharing your story. Well, what would you have made of that? The gratitude is the key piece. I'm going off a little bit off topic here, but even being here today, I'm like going into me, Sheila, we're going to be on this podcast. I'm just really grateful for every single day, every single event. And I think that's a key piece as well. But I never would have imagined I would have done that. Like, so I I had, um, it was the big shift in perspective for me was when I had a seizure back in 2013. It was a big shift in perspective for me and I thought it was brain damaged. And when I was in detox, I remember thinking, maybe I can go back to college. It was just like a little whisper in my head. Maybe I can go back to college wouldn't that be amazing I said oh, who, who do you think you are you couldn't go back to college and I remember Dr Johanna Ivers came in to do a brain study and we, I was part of a brain scan it's incredible I actually got a brain scan in the Institute of Neuroscience recently and the changes in my brain over time are incredible that's a whole other story but I was sort of answering questions that was the next question that Johanna should have asked and she turned around to me and says do you know what Brian says you have a very sharp mind and that was like, I was like, maybe I'm not brain damaged. Maybe I can go back to college. And that was like the little spark that just sparked things off. And I've since gone on and teaching with Johanna in Trinity mm, College now, wow. which is crazy. And that's how she gave me Rick Hansen's book, Buddha's Brain. And now he's on the he's on my radio show next yeah. week. So it's the way the, the world comes around in circles. But it was all about, it looks like I made these big, huge strides. But for me, it was lots and lots of baby steps, but showing up every single day. But lots and lots and lots of baby steps. And there's an 
an element of belief as well. There, there is a part of that is this belief, like uh, self-deception. Like my book isn't about addiction; it's about self-deception. I could tell myself any lie and cross any boundary, take any action by telling myself a lie and believing it. That, that's what I was the master. I was a black belt in self-deception, and I didn't believe I was that bad. I didn't believe I was a real addict, and this is a real trend throughout the book. And I think because I didn't believe that, I didn't. I wasn't dealing with these horrific. Sh- uh, pangs of shame and and remorse because I didn't actually realise I was there. I didn't feel them emotions at the time. So I think when I got out of addiction, I think there was an element of oh, you can do you can go on and do anything here. There was this like self belief anything is possible here. Give it a chance because it was like I was given a second chance at life. Like that's the name of the book is bonus time. I was given a second chance. Yeah. So it was like why not just go out and just give it a shot and not care and see what happens. And I think that boldness really really helped me. And when I start seeing rewards of that. It just that 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 set the tone then from behavioral psychology will tell you that if you're rewarded for behavior, you're going to do it more. So my boldness was being rewarded and I just start getting bolder and bolder and bolder and taking other steps. And I think people like a bit of boldness as well. And it's some people in Ireland call it notions. But here I have big notions too. So, you know, I think we need I think we need to embrace notions. We do. We do. Because as Irish people, I think we're (laughs) that's what, you know, we say it. But actually and and it's fun and it's a bit of slagging is great and it's healthy and all the rest. But we should all have notions about ourselves because actually the majority of us don't have enough notions That's about ourselves it. and we keep ourselves down yeah, yeah. and we don't actually believe that we are capable of the things that we are capable of. Yeah. I mean, I'm only starting to tap into it because I have a very strong, we all, I think a lot of us have a, have a strong self-critic yeah. that lives inside us yeah. um, and I have to have constant conversations with that voice but uh I'm I'm slightly getting better. I feel like some days it's like five steps forward, two back, you know, vice versa. But I'm delighted you've notions about yourself. Bring on the notions. Bring on the notions. Yeah. There's, yeah, a, there's yeah, a thing. Yeah. There's a thing they say like uh, b-, b hags, big hairy audacious goals. And I yeah. says I have big hairy audacious notions. Yeah. <laughs> so just go for it. Just <laughs> absolutely go for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so just to wrap up um, those years of addiction and uh, you know where you're at now, but that period of of I uh, suppose waking up and going no, this is not for me anymore. I want to stop. That was a very, very long and tough road. It was it was a tremendously tough road, and there was, there was never really a decision. I want to stop. It was more it was more of a need. So like for for so any, you didn't want to stop. I didn't want to stop. Right. I didn't think I could stop. My my story. I, I had a nar- the narrative in my life was I cannot cope anxiety. I need heroin to survive. The narrative today is very different. It's around notions and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. that was the narrative that drove my life. I I'm obsessed with language and emotions and how it drives our actions and our feelings. So that's a lot of my studies go into that as well. And that was my story. Now I was a very functional addict. A a lot of my life as well so I had a job for many of them years now I've talked to people since I wasn't functional at all but I was holding down a job for for certain reasons as well Um, it gets a bit complex how I did that but um, basically, when I lost my job, I lost my job, I lost my health, I lost my mind, I went into a form of psychosis as well, I lost everything. And I had no choice, and I said, right, I'm, it's time to sink or swim, I'm going to have to get clean to an extent, go into a treatment facility. But I still didn't think I could cope with, with anxiety without some kind of drugs. So I remember thinking, right, I'll, get, I'll have to get, get off heroin and stuff, but I'll, I'll have to do tablets, I need something, I need my crutch. So I went to get into a detox facility, and um, I was told eight weeks to get into a detox facility that will wean me off the benzos and all, Valium and drugs like that. 
And I says, oh, I need to do this now. I can't wait eight weeks. And he says, well, you can go into the Lantern, which is a methadone clinic, but you have to be clean of all drugs except methadone. And I says, right, but there was a lot of benzos in my system, benzodiazepine, yeah. and it, they would have taken four weeks to come out of my system, three weeks. So I says, right, I'm going to do a detox at home on them. And I was warned not to, but I'd done it anyway. And I described this. This is the prologue of the book, actually. It's probably, I think, the pivotal moment of my life. So two nights into that home detox was not only the most painful night of my life, it was the most important night of my life. And I woke up and me sitting around the floor, blood everywhere. And I had actually had what I was warned could happen was a grand mal convulsive seizure. So basically every cell in my brain fired at the same time. All the neurons fired at the same time. And all my body convulsed. And I'd actually driven my teeth down the center of my tongue. And that's where the blood was coming from. It was a horrific experience. And I remember my family rallied around me in my time of need after tormenting them for years. Like they were really strong. They were really there for me at that time. I was rushed to hospital, ambulance job. And I remember sitting in Blanchestown Hospital and I was lying on a trolley and I'll never forget, I said to just, I just wanted to jump out my body, like the anxiety levels were ramped up to all kinds of levels because I was going through withdrawals as well. And I just wanted to jump out my own skin. And I was just like emotionally, mentally and physically broken. And I just had to sat up on the trolley and my eyes just fixated on this fire extinguisher hanging on the wall. And I remember I just had to like tunnel vision, just lost looking at this fire extinguisher. And I remember looking at it saying, that's the color red and I says and that's a fire extinguisher and I was trying to put the words together the concepts together and I couldn't put them together and I remember saying that's weird my brain isn't working right and I remember looking around the room at other uh, objects in the room and I couldn't put sentences together and I remember just thinking oh my god your brain damage that's it, you're actually brain damage you're game over you're done and I remember just sort of Get, sitting back on, 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 on the trolley waiting for anxiety and panic just to overwhelm me like it always has like something like that would have just overwhelmed me so badly and I just remember thinking oh, I'm done I can't I can't do this anymore I'm done I give up I'm not fighting this anymore I, it's you've beat me you've literally beat me I'm done I can't do this anymore and it was like this sense of calm came over me it was like the fight was over I put up the white flag and that, I believe, was the moment, the start of the moment that completely transformed my life. It was like the crack in the ego that gave me an opportunity to look at life from a different perspective. I think it was a really critical juncture of my rock bottom, for want of a better word. So that was the, the moment that, that, that started all off. So I had another four weeks. I still had the four weeks to come yeah, off okay. the benzos. Another couple of seizures, another couple of hospital visits. I just I didn't even go to bed for that them four weeks. I just lay on my couch up with my brothers. They looked after me. I couldn't. I remember having to make a phone call at one stage for some reason, an important phone call. I couldn't even squeeze the phone. Like there was no strength. So I was physically broken. Like I was literally broken down. So I finally the benzos came out of my system. I got down to forty mils of methadone. So I was able to get into the detox facility to get off opiates then as well. And um, I was on a farm up in Nall, a, a great, a great memories because it was so life changing for me. But as I got down, weaned myself down to a, a small amount of methadone, I, I, I began. I've heard about mindfulness for the first time. I began reading about books about spirituality and psychology and getting interested in all this stuff like a self. We have this self and self talk, awareness, all of these concepts that were so foreign to me, and I was obsessed by them. And I, I wrote a diary during that time and a lot of stuff in that diary. And when I looked back on it a few years ago, I was like, wow, it was like I was in, in, ingraining ideas in my brain because I live a lot of the ideas that I was reading about at that time like can did be like you, yeah. we need to be unconditioned we need to be open in life we need to embrace failure all of these different things 
and when um, I'll never forget it, on the 8th of October 2013 it was me very very first day clean and there was already an energy coming into my life and it was like a, it was like a little tune playing in my mind you might have a life again that was a big piece for me you might mm. have a life again and on my first day clean I remember walking down to have breakfast that morning I was up on my own early that morning and um, it was like the, the day was just beckoning me outside and it was just the world just seemed so beautiful it was like just everything had this energy and colour in it it was like like things that were once hollow were just like full of depth and I've come to realise now I was really sort of pushed into the present moment because it was a beautiful October juice soak morning and I remember just sitting on the fence and there was a cat Molly that was at the at the detox facility and she crawled up my leg that morning and I remember just looking at the lush grass and the dew drops in the grass they were just like diamonds and I described it, it was like nature was literally breathing on my skin it was one of the best experiences of my life and that I believe was just one, uh, such a profound shift in perspective that just says you have a chance again you can go on and live a life again and it was that shift through the, the fire extinguisher experience but then when I had this experience as well there was just a huge shift in perspective which which really pushed me on the journey as well like I, I was fascinated by when my when I'd done a meditation a couple of weeks later at another so after detox I went to a treatment facility and then another treatment facility because he still thought I was mad I was living on my cloud now and saying life is great and they thought mm. it was a bit crazy but so I, I didn't realize the shift I had I suppose but I remember doing a mindfulness exercise and he says thoughts will come in and thoughts will go out and I remember having this realization oh my god my mind is so quiet now, it's not quiet anymore just in case anyone's <laughs> listening it's gone busy again I'm back in the real world but um, my mind went really really quiet but I mean when my mind went quiet it was like anxiety left me mm. so that was this uh, this 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 born and desire to why did I suffer why don't I suffer anymore how I can share it with others and what is this relationship between thinking language self-talk and emotions and this is a huge journey I'm on it on at the moment like I'm all about self-talk and I that's why a lot of my courses are around mm. that as well but I'm bringing in the, the neuro science behind that me phd studies and i just think if we can if we can become more aware of the narrative the inner critic as you mentioned earlier on be more aware of that and change that we can ultimately change how we feel and change our lives and i think that's the big message that i'd like to share with people going forward yeah and i want to get into that because yeah. i'm big into to self-talk and the power of the words we use oh yeah but um it, it's in it's very interesting to hear you speak about that that kind of appreciation that hyper awareness you had that you can see and smell and hear everything so, yeah. so clearly. Uh, I, I can connect to it in my own way in the sense that when I got the all clear from cancer, I had that feeling where everything was beautiful yeah. and gorgeous. And I kind of describe it like it's the afterglow. But the, 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 the thing that I kind of struggle with is that it doesn't stay you got to work at keeping it there. Yeah, got to work at it. You know, it. Yeah. and it's uh, uh, like, because I, I still remember though, the, you know, stepping out of the, the hospital and getting the news and, and honestly, it's like, it's like everything was sharper. I could see everything clear. Yeah. I could hear everything. I could feel everything. There was a kind of, like, kind of soft drizzle and it felt so refreshing and beautiful. But, and, and it was lovely and I celebrated that and it was just that overwhelming feeling of gratitude, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't always stay. So you gotta you gotta work at it, don't you? You have to and that's where, you know, implementing tools, whatever works for you is important. Um, because oftentimes things like phones and whatever distract us from being in the present moment. And I know that's that's something you're really passionate about. So let's let's talk about self talk. Um, because oftentimes and I and I put my hand up as somebody who still I fall into the hole of knowing things 
but maybe not doing, yeah. you know, and, and then I catch myself speaking to myself in a certain way and I'm going like, I, I, I know better, yeah. but I'm still doing it. I still find myself going into these repeated ways of thinking and speaking. So for you, self-talk has been massive and a massive help in your life, which is why you're so passionate about sharing with others. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's nearly self-talk can just be something simple as certain words that we actually use, like words like I can't, I must, if only COVID-19 made me feel that way, he or she made me feel that way. Like it's very reactive kind of language. You must do that. You have to do that. It's nearly like you're being cornered. Where so if you if you if you're aware of that self-talk that you're always other people are making you feel that way, things are making you feel that way. It's like it's it's a very passive way. It's a very reactive way of, of acting in the world. So simple little things like that. I'd like to change. I change myself. I prefer to do that. I choose to do that. So you're the agent of your own destiny. And I think that's really important just with the smaller words. But it's even things like like if you have like the stories, we get into what stories people have now in a second. But it's really like if you have a victim mentality, a victim story, that things always happen to you. If something happens, you're going to be like, why me? And if you say, why me, in your head, like that self-talk, it's like it's a real defeatist attitude. But if you just switch that and say, what can I do about this? It's like all of a sudden the shoulders come up. It's a different way of speaking to yourself. Like, what, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do? And it's a completely different shift in perspective. And that helps you to act in the world. But I think the stories we tell ourselves are the key piece. Like the inner critic, self-doubt, not good enough. All of these kinds of things. Can't cope. Mine was, I can't cope. And it left me in addiction for so long. I've flipped that story on its head. My story today is adversity doesn't stop me. It fuels my ability to thrive. And I nearly fake fake it until I make it for a certain time. Like you have to just tell yourself that, that you're going to be great. But then all of a sudden you start embodying that and you start living it. Like even when COVID-19 kicked in the 29th of March, that's when my book came out. I was supposed yeah. to be, I was in the final chats of going on the Late Late Show. It looked like I was going to be on the Ryan Tuberty Show. In the same day, Ryan Tuberty's not going to happen bookshops are closing um, but you can still sell online books an hour later no um, all the books are trapped in gill you can't even sell online books and I swear to God Sheila I actually found myself looking out the window with a big grin on my face saying wow even this doesn't bother you oh, how, how are you going to use this adversity oh, I love it and it was really it was amazing really? really you didn't have a moment of bollocks there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
well there was so there was there was like in the body when I, when I was getting told all the news like I'd feel it in the body okay, oh, okay, poor okay. me poor me wallowing but I caught it oh class the, yeah, okay there's a great there's a great line in Victor Frankl's book between yeah. stimulus and response there is a space in that uh-huh. space is your chance to choose your response there lies your growth and your freedom mm. so a lot of the work I do would be around self-observation like observing me thoughts feelings bodily sensations increasing that space between stimulus and res- response observing that self-talk catching it in its tracks so it doesn't hijack me emotions in the biological way that it does and when you do that so I felt it biologically but the space was bigger and that's when I smiled and I said right what are you going to do about this and it's actually turned into like it was a much bigger win for me to be to find out I was lit I was really living on bonus time like it was mm. this is this stuff is real I'm living me truth and that was better than selling books or going on the wrong totally show nothing against any any of that but it was a bigger thing for me internally so and that's um, a great message for anyone listening as well because we've been faced with a lot of of obstacles this year yeah. and people's uh you know careers have changed a lot of people have yeah. been have been made redundant or are certainly their their careers does a kind of like uh, pressing pause on it at the moment. So instead of viewing viewing the now and the difficulty as oh what was me, you know, flipping the 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 kind of the language around it is really good. We all need to be aware of our values as well. Like what what values you are living. I think that needs to be, like values based decisions are so are such a crucial part of my life. The self talk is huge. But making values-based decisions and COVID nineteen sort of made me reevaluate my values. I would have a very strong value system. I know what my values are. I mean, like boldness, accountability, industry, and it's they were the things pushing me forward. Connection, inner peace, all these different things as well. But when COVID nineteen came along, I sort of reevaluated my own values and like things that ele- were elevated to the to the fore were like co- uh, connection was huge. And compassion for others within that moment but then flexibility that's mm. been the biggest one because an ability to adapt to a change in situation we don't know what's going to happen it's unpredictable it's unknown it's uncertain so if you're going to make decisions based on and have a value system based on prioritizing flexibility because things could change it allows you to change within that moment so if something happens your self-talk isn't going to be around oh my god this happened to me it says right what can i do with this how can i how can i adapt to this situation and i could just change your perspective and change your actions then I still see you in the late late and probably soon. I have plans. I have plans. With yeah, a bit of luck. yeah, yeah. That's going to happen, isn't it? <laughs> with a bit of luck. With a bit of luck. I will, of course. Maybe on the 29th. I, says, I wonder if you can do it again a year a year on post-COVID yeah, launch yeah, or something yeah. like that. would be nice. I yeah. know. <laughs> oh, I, definitely, I definitely see that happening. They'd be mad not to have you, for God's sake. Cheers. Um, appreciate that. No, it's just the truth. So, um, yeah. So there's common kind of things that we say about ourselves. We can be saying things like as simple as, oh, I'm so tired. I'm shattered. I'm, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, you know, can be commentary on how we look a lot of the time. It can be our abilities. So oftentimes I, I, I tend to put myself down about my tech ability because it's never been a strong point of mm. mine. But I'm trying to, if I don't necessarily change the entire structure of the sentence, I'll put in yet at the end. I'm not great at that. And I'll catch myself yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, that I, that. so that I'm not, you know, reaffirming this. Yeah a lack of uh, ability that I might have when it comes to operating, you know, like, like, like trying to record stuff from home and different things. And I, I I feel I'm quite, it's just born out of fear, not knowing and feeling a bit vulnerable about, you know, using equipment. And I, I I tend to put myself down. So I'm trying to, it's, it's hard and I'm, I'm working at it, but it's tough, isn't it? 
well, here's the person talking all about mass or uh, self-talk and stuff. And I do that. I do the exact same thing. I'm like, oh my God, I do that. <laughs> with tech. With tech. Really? It's, yeah, I do that with technology. And it's like, but that that's a that's a great little thing, isn't it? I don't know that yet. Yeah. And I, 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 I do that myself because it's like, it's, it's about having that growth mindset because it's like, if you have that fixed mindset and you think you can't do anything, that your abilities and skills are innate and that's all you are. But it's, it's this ability to learn that anything can be learned. So it's, it's with, with tech, it's like do I want to learn I suppose you, you pick your battles as well you know that kind yeah. of a way but it is whatever it is to, to be aware like that pe- people often say that about pe- people have genius about them they say genius is 10,000 hours of practice it's consistency it's about putting that action and showing up day after day like I, I often say here a couple of people saying no, you're so you're really smart when I'm talking about certain topics like neuroscience so it's not like I'm a pretty average IQ I just put a lot of work into it it's just it's, it's having that growth mindset and a willingness to work and knowing that if you put the practice in you will get better at what you do so I think that yet thing is a really golden little nugget to throw in the end of any sense okay but you would I would regard you as somebody who's very intelligent would you not see yourself that way yourself I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be um, let's say overly intelligent because I, I, when I was inside the psychology class we were we were in with loads of uh, young people and we done IQ tests and all and there was some of them like super smart like what what is intelligence this is the big well, thing in psychology yeah. yeah now personally so here I'm, I'm contradicting myself here so if you talk about verbal intelligence spatial intelligence mm. and the, the criteria that's normally measured I'm a little bit above average me verbal intelligence actually a little bit below average um, which I found interesting because I put do a lot of writing but um, I Stern, a guy called Sternberg, who was a great psychologist, views intelligence as an ability to adapt. Mm. And I believe I have a very strong ability to adapt. So based on his criteria, I would say I'm very intelligent based on an ability to adapt. Yeah. But based on the average intelligence, I would be actually pretty average. But if I'm talking about neuroscience, if I'm talking about self-talk, if I'm talking about psychology, I'll come across way more intelligent. It's it's like that uh, fundamental attribution error, it's called. It's like if someone's talking about the stuff, you, you, you attribute everything to them rather than the situation like so if, if yeah. so all of a sudden someone switched that and we start talking about uh, botany I wouldn't look so smart <laughs> no so it's, it, it depends on the situation yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. so thinking back uh, to what you were saying about being a kid being a teenager you know um, and going down the road that you did and you were craving this connection and this warmth this love um, did you get it from friends? Did you get it from other people in your life? Or is that is the only place you got it through through drugs? Through drugs, yeah. I did I didn't get it anywhere through life when I was in addiction, no. And I didn't I didn't look for it. I, I didn't look okay. for it. I didn't I didn't look for it at all. It was just it brought me on that journey. And um, I was, I, even even girlfriends that I had in the early years, I, I wasn't in any relationships as I got deeper into addiction. It was never about that for me. It was just all about the drugs. It was always about the drugs. I never even looked for that. And um, it just brought me dark. I did deeper, deeper into the hole. So I, I, it was like... I didn't even know I had to look for it. It, mm. it got that dark and that deep and that lonely. I remember talking to um, to a psychologist that I'm doing a bit of work with at the moment. We're developing developing courses around addiction, and, and I was start saying I was like a, a a lone wolf in 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 thing. She says you weren't a lone wolf. You were a lonely wolf. She said no. I said the drugs were the wolf. You were a lonely lamb. 
that's what you wear oh yeah and it really put it yeah. into context for me and even when I got clean I still struggled with connection like it's only in the last two three years that I've really seen the power of that okay. like it, with me family we've started to reconnect uh, like we reconnected at that peripheral level very quickly but now it's much more stronger at an, an emotional level the book really helped me to see the harm I caused and apologising to them and letting them know how, how hurt how much I hurt them as well and then I, I've met someone before COVID-19 an amazing person uh, Natalie came into my life and it was just like she'd be one of the most affectionate people ever so mm. it's like I'm making up for lost time like in other way so it's right. uh, it has had a very happy ending I have to say yeah yeah. I'm sure for your family the because the, anyone I've spoken to who has written um, you know a memoir something that is deeply personal and it will impact yeah the, the immediate family and those around them because inevitably they will be in the story in one way or another um so i would imagine it was a it was a it was a healing process for you to write the book i would imagine a very difficult process too but did it bring about more connection and and healing for your family members as well yeah 100% and um, they often say it's a great line in addiction circles that um addiction is not a spectator a sport eventually the whole family gets to play uh-huh. but it's the same for recovery eventually the whole family get to play so I, I talked to my mom like for years now we've talked about mindfulness and meditation and she was into it before then but we'd have great conversations about life and stuff like that but it was still a little bit peripheral in retrospect we had a great relationship but it was that peripheral relationship but when I wrote the book and I realised the hurt I caused when I inter- not interviewed them when I chatted to my mum about the like I brought my mum on a drug deal and put her in danger because I was I couldn't drive the car and I put my sister in really bad danger when I was sell- like, started selling drugs to fund me habit so and I, I never I, ne- I knew I did these things intellectually but I never felt the, the, their pain or I never felt the guilt and the shame of that as well so when I was writing the book I really felt these things but I still had a little bit of a shield I think I was holding myself back because I think if I really felt them things fully I wouldn't have been able to cope so there was a coping mechanism sort of like a little uh, a little drip saying feel that a little bit but not too much so but it was a huge therapeutic experience for us and we're so much closer today after the book recovery has brought us closer all the way every year we get closer and closer and closer but writing that book that big mammoth session and really delving deep into that stuff and the chats that I've had with them since has brought us a lot closer we, we've done a TV documentary as a family it's going to be released in January as well oh, actually wow. yeah it's on uh, T, T, TG4 and the whole family are in there and my brother at one stage actually says like he breaks down crying and he says like he hasn't even apologised to us yet so this is something I've been working on as well because I, I, I apologise to some members of my family right. but it's like we didn't have them conversations so we did. I didn't actually do that and I knew I had to do that so it was fascinating that even up until a few months ago I still hadn't crossed all them bridges and, and did you struggle with with saying you were sorry? Yeah, it's it's. I had a huge conversation with my sister there a couple of months ago, and um, I think I didn't. I, I had the regrets, and I was really sorry, but I didn't completely embody it, and I didn't feel I could say it. But it was only now that I feel like I'm so sorry, and I feel the sorrow so much now that I could say it with authenticity. Yeah, it, it was really strange, and I th- I think it was a mix of us not having those conversations in the past. Like I've gone, and I can have deep conversations about any with, with lots of people now because of that area. But when it comes back to the family, like very little triggers me. I get I, it's very hard to trigger me. I'm I'm pretty bulletproof to a sure, lot of yeah, external yeah. things. 
but me dad can do it in a flash. Right. Yeah, and it'd be great. He's a big teddy bear, but he says things. He's be a very negative person around Trump and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh God. That's what they say about family members, yeah, isn't it? I always I always think of that Ram Dass quote. It's lovely. Isn't it? Yeah. So if you think you're enlightened, spend a week with, yeah, your, with family. your family. Yeah. <laughs> I heard I was listening to the, your podcast with Mali. Yeah. Mali, yeah, is that yeah, where I said yeah, it before yeah, as well? Yeah. yeah. I was I hadn't heard it in years. It was, it was amazing, amazing. So but true. It's so true. So true. No one can press your buttons yeah. like Yeah. So I think that they know the, you so well. They know you so well. And I think that was the difficulty of, of making that apology as well and really getting them to, to, to understand that fully. But it's it's great. Things are really, really good in the whole family now because there was addiction issues within my whole family. My younger brother who was crying in the video, like he was really upset with, with my addiction. He had his own addiction issues. But he's two years clean now. Oh, wow. So Brilliant. lots of great stuff have come from it. So the domino effect. The domino that, effect. Isn't yeah. that fantastic? Yeah, it's amazing. So if it's not too personal to ask, is alcohol still a big player with your folks or has that improved? No, that's massively improved. So I, I would right. say even before I got clean, and no, me, me, me dad would have stopped drinking. So he, he would have been like a big drinker, session drinker. Like he's in, uh, openly talks about the stuff. So there's no problem about that. Yeah. Like he'd go to pubs and he'd every day and he'd be sitting in the pub all day playing the guitar, all the session gigs and stuff like that. So he'd done that for years. But that sort of just tapered off as he got older. And me mum would have still having a, a good few drinks and stuff like that, but she doesn't drink, drink anymore either. It just sort of tapered off for herself as well. But me sister, like used to drink too much and wouldn't wouldn't have a good relationship with alcohol she doesn't drink anymore my brother James is free two years now hasn't had a drink in two years when he went to Rutland Centre so everyone except me my brother Kelvin has a few drinks but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be it'd be better if he didn't drink but it's not it's not it's not as, yeah, yeah, as yeah. bad yeah but it's been a lot of healing around alcohol in the family yeah brilliant because I mean look it, it's there's nothing wrong with having a few drinks. Do yeah. you know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with that, depending if it becomes an issue, then it, it needs to be looked at. And I do think for, for a lot of people this year, uh, drink has been a comfort. A crutch, yeah. Yeah, and a crutch, absolutely. Yeah. That's a that's a better word to use. Um, I know for me this year, it's probably, I found comfort in food and sweet things. <laughs> I just probably eat more than I, than I, than I, you know, wanted to or should be consuming. But for other people, it's the, it's the glasses of wine or the beers yeah. or whatever, because it's been a tough old year yeah. and, and we're at home and sometimes it can be just simply that people are a bit bored, but when it becomes something that is causing an issue in the waking hours are something that you feel like you can't get through the week without, then maybe it needs to it needs to be looked at. Would you have any advice to to anyone um listening who who is relying on drink or drugs a bit too much? Yeah, there's a couple of there's a couple of things there around that. I, I think the realization is 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 the awareness of why you're having that drink. There's always there's always there's always a, a trigger, and yeah. it could be environmental. It could be, I think, drug use or whatever or alcohol use. It's avoiding feelings. You feel a bit anxious. You feel a bit stressed, and there's a re, that's the reason for it for it. But what I would say is more tangible kind of help. If you're trying to stop drinking or you're trying to t stop to stop taking drugs, I think the first step is try to change your environment. So like, it, it, I love that line like if you sit in a barbershop long enough you'll end up getting a haircut and it's so true if you take junk food out of your house you're, it's unlikely you're going to eat it as well mm. if you take alcohol out of your fridge you're not going to drink it as easily especially now with the pubs being closed so change your environment as much as you can I think that's the first key thing because I would struggle with food as well but so I just make sure there's no junk food in the house because I sort of it's one of the, the things I seem to give in to I haven't got much resistance against food I don't know why when I have this huge resistance against alcohol and drugs so I can't I haven't figured that one out yet so change your environment 
environment that's the first thing there's another great thing like to build awareness like meditation practices is great observe your self-talk be aware of that inner critic like if you're constantly berating yourself be aware of the of the tone of that voice like are you are you being stern are you being harsh on yourself because you're constantly criticizing yourself that's going to have an impact on your body biologically and anxiety mm-hmm. will kick in you'll want to escape that as well but what i would say if you're trying to give up and you're having these cravings i think it's a great tool in addiction circles it was part of my phd it's called it's part of a, of a, a course called mindfulness-based relapse prevention and there's an idea in it that a craving is a very strange energy in the body but a craving only lasts about 60 to 90 minutes 90 seconds that's all a craving actually lasts that's short yeah it's a short it's a short time and you could have a craving and say i'd love a drink but you could be hungry you could be thirsty you could be craving something else but to get over that craving there's a great mindfulness practice that's called surfing the urge so literally think of that craving like a wave coming into the shore and instead of just sort of giving into it you just picture yourself surfing that urge and let it come in and surf the wave ride the wave all the way into shore and when that comes in that craving will be gone and you just have a glass of water and get on to something else and you can do that with anything anger it's brilliant it's a great little technique I'm definitely going to try that one yeah it's a great little technique you can use it with anything not even just alcohol like if you're going to be reactive you're going to be angry and stuff like that I was chatting to Mali about that mm. you surf the urge to lash out you can use it in a lot in a lot of ways because it's, it's a craving to lash out it's, it's, it's sort of a craving in a way as well yeah because yeah. oftentimes we're not we're not responding we're completely reactive yeah. and before we know it we've said things that we maybe didn't mean to say or we've run away with ourselves yeah and and even the most evolved people the the mo- you know the the most chilled out people will sometimes as you said there'll be people that'll press their buttons or there'll be stuff that they'll react to and they'll find themselves going how does that, how did that happen yeah but the more i suppose you put these tools into practice the better it can be. That's a brilliant, I love that one about the wave. It's I'm definitely nice going to, I'm definitely yeah. going to work on that one. And another, another one to add to that as well, I think it's the golden rule of change in habits as well is like you're trying to get rid of a bad habit, which is the alcohol. So yeah. replace it with a positive habit and, 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 and reward yourself with it as well because that's how you remove habits. You, you can't just extinguish something. It's very hard just to extinguish a bad habit and sit in a room and try to be not drinking. Like reward it and do something good. Go for a walk, go for a run, go for a, uh, do something with your friends, read a book, whatever that is and reward yourself with that as well. I think that's yeah. important. Do you ever have a moment where you you feel a bit vulnerable or a bit weak or you're just thinking back to that time when, when you know, taking heroin felt good. Does that ever creep into your mind anymore? It's, it's really interesting. So in 2015, I think it's important to say this. So I, I had that beautiful experience in 2013. It was like my whole world, I was just given this gift, a uh, dumb look, when awakening, I don't know what to call it, it was this mm. shift in perspective. And I was floating on a cloud. I went back to college. And in 2015, the second year of college, I wanted to really do well in college. I was really trying to compete and do well. And I was getting caught up in the busy world. I was back in the rat race. Mm. And I remember walking through Minute University and looking at the joint sequoia trees and just having this realization, wow, I don't see them trees like I used to. I was like, I lost awareness in unawareness. I was like, I lost that beautiful life feeling I was gifted and I didn't even see it. Now, previous to that, I, I was doing delivery, deliveries, uh, field deliveries to finance myself, put myself through college. 
And I remember one of the evenings I had a bad cold and I, I, I went to the chemist and I said, I'm going to get solpidine. I need solpidine for this. Now, I was a heroin addict. Shouldn't be messing with solpidine. Yeah. And I started taking norofen and solpidine. Started regularly a couple of times a week playing around with that. So I literally had a relapse. Some people might see that as a big deal. In addiction circles, that's a huge deal. And I remember looking at them joint psychiatry and it all came to me. Oh, my God. Like, I'm, I'm losing. I'm losing that kind of edge that I had that, 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 whatever it was I was given I was I was thrown away and that's when I dug down on my emotional and mental fitness I developed what I call a program for life the one that I follow and I share with everyone else and ever since that day I've never had a wobble I, I used to often say um, I used to often say that heroin like I could sit in a room with people drinking people doing coke not that I would but I could do that and it wouldn't bother me mm. I couldn't sit in a room with people doing heroin and because it was just too powerful and I had too much of a pull on me. But since I've met Natalie, my girlfriend, and she often says that to me and I says, no, I, I genuinely feel that it's it's not even a whisper in my ears anymore. It used to whisper to me, I think, from a distance. I'm over here if you ever need me. But it doesn't even whisper to me anymore. And I think I've completely that put extinguished that 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 part of my life. And it's, it's not a problem at all. Yeah. But I suppose it's what you were saying The you know, the reason you were feeling anxious and the reason you turned to to drugs and to heroin was that you, you were you were craving connection yeah. and now you ha- have connection and abundance in your life. Yeah, yeah. So can we talk about Natalie? <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. How long, <laughs> so you're together now a few years? No, no, we're only not together. No, since February. Oh, really? Since February, I yeah, love it. yeah, yeah. So not even a year yeah, yet. Not even a year yet, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> and it's going good. It's going great, it's going great. It's going really well, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> I've never talked about this live before, but I'm open about it. She's cool about it too. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's going phenomenally well. And it's 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 like when we, when it was through COVID, so when we met, we couldn't actually... Uh, yeah, 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 through COVID. But I remember at one stage we had like an eight-hour video call, an eight-hour video call. And like I was like, the, the the one problem we do have at the moment would be like I'm all about consistency and morning routines. It should be a bit more lax on that kind of stuff. So like, you basically a whole day was a whole day. I went to bed at nine o'clock all the time. That was my bedtime. Nine o'clock, up at five o'clock. Very rigid on this kind of stuff. And when I met her, what you call it, the first few texts, and I was like, I have to go. And she was like, oh, What are you doing that for? But then slowly and steadily, I was standing like two, three in the morning my whole routine was gone <laughs> eight hour video calls and it was just we, we just really bonded over like uh, spirituality um, talking about emotions and the connection and every conversation out there and we just bonded over that and yeah it's just it's gone it's gone phenomenally well it really is so in terms of your own feelings of spirituality and what feels right for you what is that what does that look like yeah, so I wouldn't be religious in any way. For me, spirituality, I think, could be nearly um, the word awareness really slots in there. It's all about awareness for me. Now, I do believe there's an energy out there. Like, it's it's like when you do talks, you can feel the energy in the room. You know when the energy is good. Now, we can't see electricity, but we know it's real. Mm. So why is energy not real? Like, just because we can't measure it scientifically, and I'm a scientist, I'm coming from, I'm doing the PhD, I'm doing all that stuff, but science can't explain everything. It's not the be-all and end-all. So just because you can't measure something doesn't mean it's not real and I think energy energy for me is the currency of life it is the currency of life and it protects me energy very uh, in a big way and I think for me that spirituality is just there's an energy a thing that we can't talk about and when we 
I don't know about karma or coming back or any of these things, but when our life does end in the body and all this kind of stuff, I think there's an energy that goes somewhere else. Look at that. That for me is spirituality. So the type of chats that you have, they can go to some deep places, I would imagine. Very, very deep places. Yeah. yeah. And we'd have, we had, we bonded over the, with similar uh, ideas on spirituality and energy and stuff like that. We've talked about dreams. She'd be big into the dream stuff. And we have our little arguments about not agreeing with this and not agreeing with that, which is healthy, healthy as well. Too, yeah. You know, it's very good. And uh, yeah, they can just go anywhere. And just about feelings, like even though, even though, like here, here's the thing, it's, 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 um, when I, I'd never been in love before, ever, never been in love before. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't, I'm not even close. And when I, I know that because when we were having them calls, I remember just one evening after a call, and I remember just lying in my bed and I had this sort of weird feeling in my heart like what the hell is that mm-hmm. and like I didn't actually know what it was like this warm pulling feeling that was the first time I actually ever experienced it. I used to think when other people talked about that they were exaggerating or I didn't really believe it but I actually had that feeling in my chest the physical feeling in my chest and it's like she'll, she'll love me talking about this now but um, yeah. it was like it was, that was mind blown for me so a lot of the conversations I was just blown away by this like oh my god we're just talking about feelings 24-7 so it was like I was like the, 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 the female in the relationship really for a while like yeah, you know just great. all no feelings, feelings, feelings. Because I needed to go there yeah. because I'd hidden away from feelings for so long. So it was something I needed as well in my life. Had you become disconnected from your own feelings, do you think, in the yeah, past? Yeah, 100%. Completely disconnected. When, when I got clean and I was doing aftercare and in treatment, they'd say, well, how do you feel? And it was like, they might as well have been talking to me in French. I didn't know what, I'd intellectualize everything. Okay. Well, what are you talking about? And how does that work? And what's the information around feelings? Like I'm trying just, to logically make logically sense. Logically make sense. But I didn't know feelings were in the body. And it was this mind-body disconnect because I couldn't go there. So I completely disconnected. Yeah. So over time, over the five years, I think I was, I slowly began feeling the feelings very, very slowly. I didn't do this on purpose. It's just the way it all worked out for me. Mm. But I think that's what I had to do. I think there's a, there was a higher sense of awareness. The subconscious was saying, we're going to do this slowly because you're not going to be able to cope with all these feelings all at one go. So I think now that I'm ready, I've met Natalie at the right time. And, and like it's like all of a sudden I got, what did I do? I got addicted to feelings and I'm all about the feelings. <laughs> But it was it was the time and was right. So when did you go from your eight hour <laughs> video calls to actually seeing each other face to face? Face to face. We seen each other. Um, it would have been around April. So when when yeah. when the first thing was over, yeah, yeah and we yeah. met we met in the Phoenix Park and. Um, yeah, it was just a great force. Was that surreal? Because he had been communicating online. It, it was surreal because we knew each other so well. Yeah. Like that, wasn't, that, was, that was one of many long, long, long video calls. Sure. We knew each other so well inside and out. And we've chatted about it and said, like, has it made a relationship a million times stronger? Because we knew so much about each other and we didn't, we, we, we knew about our emotions, our spiritual life, our mental life before we got to know each other physically. So it's a very interesting thing. I want to write a blog on that, actually. I remember saying it to her, says, we've seen each other out in a club or something like that. <laughs> we wouldn't have even talked to each other. Like, you, yeah. we, you wouldn't know, like, you know. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm delighted for you. This is great. Thanks so you're like, this is, even though you've had a lot of challenges this year and obviously your book coming out was such a high moment for you and then you had all this other stuff going around behind it, a launch not happening, the late, late, not manifesting right now, it will. Um, but this has been a brilliant time for you too. 
it has it has and it's funny i don't like saying that out loud but then i says no i have to own that and you have to let people know that as well the truth the truth will let uh, will speak for itself and mm. I, th- I think or the truth will set you free and I, I do genuinely believe that so you have to tell people the truth and let them make their minds up on that as well so i had huge challenges my phd was ruined as well during covid because i was doing it in the rutland center at two years of work was just ruined in an instant because they, we hadn't got a big enough sample size and if we continue oh, yeah if we really can, yeah so if we continued measuring people but we'd be measuring baseline COVID anxiety rather than what's there. So that meant that that two years of work that you did is now scrapped. Well, so I flipped it on its head and I've done a big, huge online study. So we right. have to, we did have to scrap that work, yeah. Okay. But, uh, but I still get the PhD. It's not going to affect okay, me. Okay, good, good, good. I've, I've nearly flipped it in a good way, which is uh, which is a bit strange as well because I'm doing it based on another. Um, uh, study that I've done for my masters and a lot of the same methodology so I can copy a little bit of that for going forward for the thesis which is nice so it's made it easier for me in one way and I don't plan to stay in academia as well so it has it's 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 turned out okay as well but it was so you a, don't plan to stay why no um I don't for me I think there's a huge divide between academia and the real world and I think I think I'm more about academia is great and we need the knowledge we need science but I think it doesn't speak to the labor it's not going to make the changes like if you if you like i'll give, I'll give you an example like one, one of the variables i'm studying in academia is called um it's it's impulsivity but we call it response inhibition there's another there's another thing in in, in self-talk in in uh, the science that i study around um the behavior of language really and mm-hmm. the unit of analysis is arbitrarily applicable relational respondent now there's a reason for that within the science but it just mm-hmm. holds people back and it puts up these barriers i think we need to I don't have a clue what you just said. I know, I know, it's crazy. (laughs) But it's ready to be real. That's why I love the name of this show as well. Like, let's get real. Let's talk about the stuff that people can actually relate to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what you're brilliant at. And I I think, and that's why I'm going to get away from academia. So I'll I'll keep my toe in there all the time. Like, I think I'll still lecture in Trinity and UCD because I love delivering them lectures on the neuroscience. But I deliver them lectures in a very lay way. It's a very, uh, an emotion-based lecture. It's Mm. story-based lecture. People, people can't sit for hours and hours and hours and listen to academic jargon so I think in academia yeah we get it all we get it all just to, to tick a box mm. but like if, if give them the information but make it fun make, make academia fun tell them stories invoke emotions and make it fun so people can remember that and, and bring in the, the academic stuff as well but I think there's a way of doing it as well and I just I just don't think it's the right fit for me yeah okay yeah so what are what's on the list the to-do list then the future plans the to-do list the big one for me so obviously I'm starting my life sort of at 40 my financial life again so as soon as I get myself financially stable I'm doing loads of online courses I've another book in me as well I do a lot of speaking gigs I'm doing a lot of consultancy work in the corporate arena as well around values and principles and culture and stuff like that and it's going it's going phenomenal at the moment like I can't can't, I'm very very lucky for that at the moment but as soon as I get myself financially stable or if if I had if I didn't have to worry about money right now Mm. My big thing would be finding out the secret, the the, the, the the nugget of getting young people to engage in these tools. Yes. And that's the big one for me. And I'd love to go at a governmental level and say, like, really do a lot of research on that. How can we get them to engage? Because we teach them mindfulness. We get them to do this. We get them to do that. But how can we really get them to engage? And I think that's going to be a key thing. It's a big task. But that'd be, that's my mission. That'd be one of my big missions. Wow, brilliant. Okay, so you spoke about your morning routines and I have signed up to do your course. I'm actually, I've already told you that this weekend I plan to sit down with a big mug of tea and the notepad and the pen and take notes. I'm so looking forward to it because I feel like my mornings need a lot of TLC. I'm the ultimate, again, I'm not going to even verbalise what I was about to say because I'm reaffirming it. But in the past, I have been 
quite the procrastinator. So I'm looking forward to doing your course. But you said that you used to, before Natalie, was like, go to bed at nine, get up at five. How <laughs> does one do this? You yeah, train, you train yourself. You train yourself, and and there is a there's, there's little tools and tactics for it as well. And I think that one of the biggest things, and it's a big big part of my course, like it's about morning routines and daily routines, but it's 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 called the Mel Robbins rule, the five second rule. And I've dug deep into this rule, and it's grounded in science. And you literally just what well, if you're if you're to do anything, and you're feeling like you're you're about to negotiate, you say five, four, three, two, one, go. It has to be a backward countdown. And she done this herself in her own experience, and she completely changed her life. And she's used this now and, and delved into the science of this, and it's it's grounded in locus of like science stuff, like locus of control, behavioral activation, uh, lots of other scientific principles. And it basically doesn't give your brain the ability to start the negotiations, to justify and to rationalise, and to stop you doing what you want to do. So, so the second you're maybe like picking up the phone to, you know, look at something on Instagram, you 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 go into the countdown. Yeah. Five, four, three, two, one, go and put it Stop. down. Yeah. I like that. As soon as you wake up in the morning, Very five, good. four, three, two, one, go. And you have to go. Now, there's a great idea as well. I love Jerry Seinfeld come up with this idea of don't break the chain. So if for 22 years, I think it was, he told at least one joke for 23 years because he didn't break the chain. At least something, he'd done a bit of work on it. So i done that with my morning routine a couple of years ago and I never break the chain. So even if I wake up and I'm mad late, let's say, to do something, I'd say, right, well, I'm going to do 30 seconds of gratitude because I don't break the chain. Uh, so I'll wake up and I'll say five, four, three, two, one, go. But what happened with me was I didn't break the chain with five, four, three, two, one, go. So every time I thought of that, I I, I I jumped into action. So I'd nearly think of something that I had to do and I'd be like, oh my God, five, four, three, two, one, I have to do it. I was like, oh my God, I have to do it, but I'd done it. So I, 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 it became an action habit and it yeah. came through practice in my life as well. So they're very powerful techniques. I go into a lot more depth and detail within the course obviously as well, but it's about building them habits and it's... It's mo- motivation is another thing. Motivation is a myth. Like we think we're not motivated, but if you weren't motivated to go for a run and I put a line in front of you, all of a sudden you're motivated. So mm. the environment determines your motivation. Like that's a really important player as well to, to realize if you're not feeling motivated, you just haven't set up your environment the right way. Yeah. So if you want to get motivated for a morning routine, set up your morning in the day, like set your alarms a certain way, put your phone in the next room so you have to get up out of bed, use the five, four, three, two, one rule. But then don't make it really difficult for yourself. Like, don't start with a morning routine that takes you an hour. Do a minute of gratitude, a minute of visualization. That's a two-minute practice. Make it easy, and you're putting less obstacles in the way. Yeah, because, again, Mally, who we spoke about there, the chat that we had, she spoke about your habit stacking. Yes. So it's, I, it's, 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 it's effectively that, isn't it? And you yeah. build, and you build, and you build. build. And the, the more you do it, the more it embeds in, and it gets easier to do it, and you automatically... I suppose it's like muscle memory, isn't it? It's like muscle memory. And the, the idea with habit stacking, which is really brilliant, so it's 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 creating a new habit and stacking on an existing habit. Mm. So we all, washed, we all washed our hands throughout COVID. So I start telling people, well, mindfully wash your hands. So what I've done, I was doing it myself. So now every time I wash my hands I find myself doing it mindfully because I've stacked those habits together they're associated yeah brushing your teeth we all brush our teeth so mindfully brush your teeth have a cup, cup, first cup of coffee in the, in, at the start of the day. Have a mindful cup of coffee where you're drinking and you're really feeling and you're really being present. And you will just make them associations and you will do that automatically as well. So try to make it as easy for yourself as you can. And that's the key piece. 
So are you back to waking up at five now again? No, I don't think I'll ever get back. I'm not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not allowed to go to bed at nine. <laughs> so how early is early now? Seven is the thing. And it, see, That's far more doable for me. Seven is doable. my up time. Yeah, so, yeah. Yay. I used to be in the gym for six. I was in the National Aquatic Centre and it, we had yeah. a great social group in that gym. And we used to have great laughs. But God knows when the gyms are going to open back up. But I've set up my own gym circuit now at home as well. And I have it all working for me. So I'll probably just stick with the, I'm just saying I'll probably just stick. I'm not, I'm not allowed to go back to <laughs> let, Let's be honest. <laughs> oh, come here. I, I've loved this chat. Um, and I know we've only scratched the surface and you're going to continue to plan programs and talks. And and as you said, really implement that and, and communicate with our younger generation. Our younger generation. Which is so important. Oh, they need it. They need and it. And especially now, because we all know that during this time, the age group that's really been impacted is the late teens, early 20s. Yeah. They really need help, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, more power to you, Brian. It's been so good to meet you in person. And I know you have a huge fan base and it's going to continue to grow and grow and grow. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a million. It's been great meeting you, Sheila. I remember when I was at Pendulum, it was the last Pendulum and I seen you talk and it was just a vibe you had. I have to talk to Sheila Shoga someday. And oh, I'm just class. delighted to come in here and have the chat. It's been fantastic. It really oh, has. It's been an honour. Cheers, man. Thanks a million. Thanks a lot. Thank you. If you're interested in joining any of Brian's brilliant online courses, simply go to his website, brianpenny.com. And if you enjoyed our conversation, please show your support by clicking follow, giving a rating and leaving a little comment. Thank you so much. This episode of Ready To Be Real Conversations was brought to you in partnership with Dr. Coys, who offer tasty nutritional chocolate and a range of free from cooking ingredients. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.